I debated whether or not even to have a sermon after that. I thought that they probably did a good enough job that there was really no need to get up. I could have just sat and enjoyed and rested on my laurels, but alas, here we are. Um, over the past maybe two weeks or so uh, in our house, um, you know, we, I, I kind of care a very, very fraction of a little bit. My wife cares a little more than I do. Who, who raised your hand, is really invested in the royal family in Great Britain? Like, who are, like, who are my royal fans? No, great. Who said why? Love it. I love it. I, mean, I know people that, like, traveled for their weddings and all that kind of thing. So we, we've been watching this documentary, this Harry and Meghan documentary, you know, and there's some, some stuff that's come out about the British monarchy that's perhaps not the, the, the greatest lights. But one of the things that's always been weird to me that to think of this idea that in today's world that monarchies are still a thing, right? Like, we, we forget that. Like, we think of kings in the U.S. as, like, that thing that happened in, well, the age of kings, right? Or we think of biblical times when there were kings in the book of Kings. But it's, it's very much still alive today, and it's, it's a thing that is just prevalent and happening. And, and certainly, the, the British monarchy, with all of its fascination and all of its obsessions and all these things, has had a pretty stained history, as we find out in some of this recent stuff, but also as you can just study in historical textbooks. Right? Like they oppressed a lot of the world over the course of centuries, and are still in some ways kind of still doing that even to this day in some certain places, right? So there's this stain that is on the monarchy. And when we think of kings today and rulers, one of the things we think of is kind of a corruption, a selfish gain, a power for power's sake. And, and, and so the reason I bring up the, the royals and just monarchy in general is because we're celebrating tonight the coming king, right? That's, that's the the message of the, of the evening, and that's not just that's not my message that I cleverly came up with. That's what we celebrate. The king is coming to be with us on this earth, to rule and to reign, right? Tonight, as a baby, but eventually in, in glory when he comes again. And it won't be as manger scene type of beauty, quiet, peaceful type of thing. It'll be a, a, in power. And so when we look at the monarchy model that we have today, we have to admit something. We don't actually have the greatest image of what it means to be a king, right? We, we, don't, we don't do that. We rejoice. We sing for joy. Yes, the king has come. But honestly, like if the U.S. had a vote, how many of us would actually want a king today? Probably not a whole lot of people, right? We're, we're crying free as it is more than we already are with the government that we have. And it's anything but in some places. And so we... We don't necessarily resonate as a people with this idea of monarchy. We just kind of take it for granted that Jesus is the king. But, but what does it mean? Right? What does it mean that Jesus is our king? What kind of king? Right? That's the question that, that comes up is if he's going to come and if he's going to rule and if he's going to reign. But what I want to know is what kind of king is he going to be? We do this with elections of our own leaders. What kind of leader are they going to be? Are they going to be for me? Or are they just going to be another one in the long line of people that are out for their own selfish gain? Are they going to help the powerful to be more powerful than they were before? Are they going to help the rich to be more rich than they were before? Are they going to get come in under false pretenses but then just do what every ruler and king has done over the course of centuries is eventually... Power consumes, right? So for me, when I think king, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that I don't really want to resonate with. 
I have questions. I say, Jesus, what kind of king are you going to be? And who are you going to be a king for? Are you a king of the people? Am I one of those people? Um, I'm, I'm a little dirtier than most people think I am, Jesus. Are you a king for me or are you a king for them when you're coming? And so tonight, I want to look at this idea of what kind of king Jesus is going to be and who he comes for and who his rule will benefit and be for. And there's a whole bunch of places where we can go to do that. But one of the unique things that we see is when we read this, this whole birth narrative, right? We always go, what are the passages? Isaiah 9, we always like to go into Luke 1 and 2. And we read all the readings that we've just had. But tucked in there, there's a couple little things that we don't often read so much. And so this evening, I want to spend some time in one of those places. And it's in Luke chapter 1. And if you are from a liturgical background, if you're maybe you grew up in a church that you know was Catholic or, or Anglican or Lutheran, uh, this would have resonance to you. You would have probably heard this. You would have heard this recited or perhaps even sung in some contexts. Um, in Latin, we call it the Magnificat. Uh, in, in the text today, it's quite simply Luke 1, 46 through 55. It's the Song of Mary. We get uncomfortable when we mention Mary in reform circles. Like somehow she's, you know, we don't want to just kind of push her. But Mary is a wonderful, wonderful person of Scripture whom the Lord chooses, for reasons unknown to us as we'll see, to carry the Savior of the world into this earth. And when the angel comes to her and tells her that that's what's going to happen, right, she eventually kind of wraps her head around it. She visits Elizabeth who is going to mother uh, John and then she has this song of of gratitude and of blessing, and she says some things in there that help us to really get a sense and understand what kind of king Jesus is going to be. And so this morning I would invite us to stand together as we read this, this little story, this little song that Mary sings as a result of having been chosen to be the mother of the Savior. Um, if you're new here, we stand not because we like up-downs. Uh, you'll notice there's no knee pads or anything like that. Uh, we just like to stand when we read the main scripture reading uh, just out of a reverence for the Lord's word. And it kind of distinguishes between the things I'm saying here up front, uh, hopefully guided by the Holy Spirit, but it, it distinguishes between my words and God's words because they are holy. My words are not holy. And so we just stand out of an awe and a reverence for the word of God that we get to have and read this morning or this evening. I keep doing it. Here's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat.
it's really important to remember that God does nothing at all by random circumstance, right? It's not like God just has this, this general overarching plan and fills in the details later. Everything that God does and the way that he does it, the way that things transpire, have meaning of some kind that tell us something about who he is, right? And so in this case, it's not just important that Jesus came on this night, but it's really important how Jesus came on this night. At the beginning of the birth narrative in, in Luke 1, after we get through some intro stuff, we find ourselves in, at first in a place that we might expect. We're in Jerusalem, and we're in the temple. Right? That, if you think, well, when's the Savior going to show up? Where would he be? Well, it would be in Jerusalem in the temple. That would be the expectation of the religious leaders and, and all those folks. And there happens to be a priest by the name of Zechariah who's working in the temple on that night. And, and the Lord comes to him in a, in a vision and, and proclaims to him that, look, the Savior of the world is coming. You are going to have a child, but, but your child's not the Savior. You're going to name him John, and he is going to be the one that announces the coming king. Right? He's going to grow up, and he's going to be, you didn't say this in the vision, but he's going to be a little strange. He's going to eat some bugs and maybe shower a little less than he should. But eventually, he's going to come from the wilderness, and he's going to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. Right? And as we know, John ends up baptizing <coughs> Jesus when all is said and done. Right? And so John gets this prophecy here. Zechariah is told he's going to have John as a son. He's going to announce it. And you would think that like that's where everything starts, but... But the, the message of the Messiah itself doesn't happen anywhere near Jerusalem. Right? For that, we have to go quite a bit north. We go through Samaria, the place that the Jews hate, that they would walk around in order to avoid going through because of just how much they hated the Samaritans. And we go into the region of Galilee to this little town of Nazareth. There is nothing significant about Nazareth. When I go down to visit family, uh, every so often, depending on what route I take, I drive through Beckley, West Virginia. I hate Beckley, West Virginia. I'm sorry if you're from there. There's, I'm sure, there's, there's one who's like, that's where my brother... I'm so, I don't care. It stinks. There's nothing there. Somehow that's always where you run out of gas and you have to pull over. And it's like no matter what, right? It's always the coldest. I remember staying at a hotel in Beckley. Like, Nazareth is that... It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If Nazareth disappeared tomorrow, no one would care. It is an insignificant town. And in that town, the angel appears to this woman named Mary, who just happens to be engaged to Joseph. And Mary is entirely insignificant. She's a peasant girl. She's a nobody. She's poor. She doesn't have any status, so to speak, of no one knows or cares who she is. Right? You can count the people that would miss her on one hand, probably. Right? She doesn't matter. And Joseph really doesn't matter either. We know that he comes to the lineage of David, continues through, but it's not like he has some status because of that. He's an insignificant guy too, right? They're just, they're just young, engaged folks that don't matter to anyone outside of their own circle of friends. And that's who God chooses to come and be the mother of the Savior and the King of the world. Right? That's how he shows up. We don't know why he picks her. We have no idea. We're never told in Scripture why it is her that is chosen. We aren't told that it's on her merits. We don't think that it's on her merits. Right? It's not like she had some special pizzazz that we didn't know about, that we get to learn about later. She was chosen for the fact that God wanted to choose her. 
And so when the angel comes and tells her that she is going to be the one who will birth the Savior of the world and that her conception will be miraculous because she's a virgin and she has some questions about that for sure, right? After all that is said and done and she kind of comes to terms with it, she just stands in awe that she might be chosen. And so when we come to this point in Scripture where she sings her song, it is a response to that honor and that joy and that blessing And she kind of tells it in a sense of where I've been and where I am now. She kind of contrasts. Look, here's here's who I was and here's who through God I now am. And then she goes on a little bit and talks about us as well. But let's look at that really quickly again. The first four verses are Mary talking about herself. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, it's important to note there's nothing that could magnify the Lord in the world more, right? He's, he's as majestic and glorious as he's going to be. We don't make him more glorious, but we can magnify his glory to the people in our lives and in our sphere. And so Mary's saying, look, my soul, because of what the God has done for me, my soul now magnifies the Lord. People can see in me something different, something of him that they didn't see before. When people come in contact with me now, they're, they're in some way more connected to God than they were before because they, they, they see something in me. Because I have this fire inside of me that the Lord has, has put there. I'm going to be the mother of the king. <coughs> my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has looked on my humble estate. That's kind of both in an economic sense and in a righteousness sense. She goes, look, I'm not any kind of righteous person. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of a wretched person. And I don't have anything, so to speak, if there is nothing to my name. He, he has regarded me in this humble estate. I'm just the servant. But now... Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Look, I was nobody, and somehow now, all the generations of all the world are going to know me or know about me. Like, think of how crazy that is. We're sitting here tonight, I'm standing, and we're talking about a peasant girl from Nazareth from thousands of years ago that, apart from God's acting, is completely off the map irrelevant. She means nothing to us. How many peasant girls in that neighborhood are we never going to talk about, right? Because that's how irrelevant they are apart from God. And so she's like, look, I was nothing, but now the Lord has put me in this position where I am blessed. And all generations will know my name. They'll know who I am. Right? Mary is one of the most common names in the world today right? for girls. It's, it's this reversal of, of status. It's a complete reversal of who she was to who she is now. And this is before Jesus is even born. She acknowledges this. And so she's praising God for it and said, His name is holy. Oh my gosh, I can't stop talking about it. Right? And then we get to verse 50. And verse 50 changes things. She moves from her reversal to this reversal of the nations, the other people. So just as God has reversed her fortune and her estate and her way of being and her name from nothing to something, so he's going to do with the others. And here's some things he says. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength, right? He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. 
and he brings down the mighty from their thrones. He exalts those who are humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but the rich he sends away empty. He helps the servant Israel in remembrance of mercy as he spoke of our fathers. There's this reversal of the people that takes place, and it's that reversal that tells us what kind of king we are going to get when Jesus comes and is born to this world as you celebrate tonight. And so the first noteworthy thing is here. When Mary starts in verse 50 talking, she talks in the past tense, even though Jesus isn't even born yet. What does it say? And in his mercy is for those from generation. He has shown. He has brought. He has exalted. He has filled. He has helped as he spoke. It's weird that she's talking about the Jesus who's still inside of her unborn as if these things that he's promising have already happened. Right? This is an echo of the prophecies we see in the Old Testament. When prophets would prophesy about something, they would speak in the past tense to signify the level of faith that something, it's, it's as good as already done. Not, I think he's going to do these things, but listen, this is a done deal. Well, he's not even born yet. Yeah, yeah, but I know. But it's, but it's the Savior of the world. Like, it, this, all this, is, it's like it's already happened. All this stuff is already reversed. Right? And so what are the things that we see that are reversed? Here's a couple. First, a moral reversal. Right? The proud translates as the preeminent. Those who think that they're better than everyone else. Those who are proud and think of themselves as perfect or self-righteous, hmm, they're going to be brought low. But those who come with a face of humility, who know what their worth is apart from Jesus, who know that they're broken and bruised and nothing without him, right? those who stand in the back and beat their breast, right? rather than the Pharisee who's up front boasting, those are going to be the ones that get exalted. And so there's this moral reversal. If you think you're self-righteous, when I come as king and my kingdom reigns, things are going to be different. Those people who puff themselves up by their own, you know, I am so, I have read my Bible cover to cover every month, and I know more than you, and I have been to every Sunday school class, and I give more than anyone else, and all of these things that, that, that have this self-righteous drip, right? The Pharisees, picture them. They're going to be humbled. The people who think they're better than everyone else, they're going to be humbled. A moral reversal, right? Those who rely on their own righteousness are going to have a rude awakening in the kingdom of God when Jesus is born and rules and reigns. The second is this, a social class type of reversal. Those who rely on their own status are going to really struggle. Right? My family founded this church. They were there the first day. So you should sing the songs that I want. By the way, if you ever come to me with that, I'm just going to giggle. <laughs> Sorry. We love you. We love you so much more deeply than you ever could think we love you, but I'll giggle if you come to me with that, that kind of a, a comment, right? But those who rely on their status, those who have the, 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 the titles in this world, those, are, those who are the haves, those who are the ones who, who, you know, well, my daddy's name, do you know what my name is? I'm a Pharisee. Look at my clothing. You need to recognize those people are going to be humbled and they're going to struggle when it comes to the kingdom of Jesus Christ when he rules and he reigns. And instead, those who are of humble estate, 
as Mary says, and as Mary was, they're going to be exalted. And then finally, there's a reversal of material and spiritual things too, right? It talks about those who have hunger, he'll fill with good things, and the rich he has sent away. So this idea of if you rely on your wealth for your security, and you think that that's going to get you anywhere in the kingdom of God, think again. When the king comes, it's the lowly and the poor and the hungry who are going to be exalted. So those who rely on their righteousness, those who rely on their status, and those who rely on their wealth are going to profoundly struggle and you have a rude awakening in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus isn't just any old king. He's going to come and his reign is going to turn this world entirely upside down, right? The rich will bow low, the poor will be exalted, the weak are all of a sudden strong. Jesus isn't a king who snubs his nose at the people. He's a king for the people. He's a king for the least of these Jesus is a king who's out to love, to save, and to set free. The lost, the oppressed, the poor, the needy, the frail, the worst of the worst sinners in the sight of God. Mary's song is a song of praise because it celebrates a king who came to change the world for those people. That's why he's here. Jesus is coming to do what we have hoped every politician you've ever filled a bubble in for was going to do for you, but never, ever did. Right? What do we do? We put our hope in those. They're going to change this country, and it never happens. It just keeps getting worse. Right? Jesus isn't that kind of a king, because Jesus isn't out for his own power. We know that because he goes to the cross for his people. Right? He's about sacrifice and about coming in to care for those who no one else is willing to care for. Jesus is the king who actually will pull off the things that we hope every king and ruler and governor and politician and president and legislator, whoever has failed to do. He will come through for us. He is a king for the people. And in case Mary's song doesn't make this perfectly clear, we can hear this straight from him as well. Right? In Luke 4, uh, Jesus is getting ready to start his public ministry. Right? We have debate about whether the wedding happened first or this happened first. But Jesus is invited as, as a grown man, as a Jewish man. He's invited into the temple. Right? He comes there. He's there in the, in the synagogue with the people. Not the temple, sorry. And it's custom that during the time that they meet for worship that they read scripture. And so they pick Jesus and they hand him a scroll from Isaiah. And Jesus gets up and he's reading the scroll just like we would have somebody up this evening reading the scripture. And this is how it goes. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And this is what he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Nothing weird so far, but then he gets up and he rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled, fulfilled in your hearing. And all who, spoke, all who spoke well of him marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So one thing to get up and read from Isaiah Another thing to say, hey, today, that's fulfilled in me. Imagine if I read prophetic words like that to you and said, yeah, today, that's fulfilled in me. You'd be like, 
isn't that the bald guy we like kind of elected last year to come here? I don't think that that's the right. Like they start to they're, 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 they they give him credit and they give him praise, but they're also kind of like, isn't that Joseph's kid? Like he was remember like he was the little boy in the temple at one point who was smart, smarter than everyone else. What's up with that, right? And so Jesus comes and he says, look, this is what I've come here for. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've come for the poor, the blind, the needy, the oppressed. Jesus is a king that has come for all of those people. Now, one caveat. Some of you in this room are quite wealthy. And you might hear, shoot. I guess Jesus didn't come for anyone who works hard for their living and has amassed some money and has a 401k. And that's not the truth at all. I want to just clarify that. This distinction that Jesus makes between poor and rich, it's not so much about money, right? It's about the way that you think about your money. Right? It's about the posture that you have, right? What Mary's song tells us about Jesus is that what he offers, his kingdom isn't something that you can get with money or status. He's not saying that if you're rich, you can't be in the kingdom. Right? He's saying if you think you're rich is going to help you get into the kingdom, you're sorely mistaken. I don't care if you're a billionaire or if you have $3 in your bank account. It, it in no way makes one iota of difference to how you relate to the kingdom of God when it comes and when I reign. Right? So it's not that wealth is bad, poor is good. It's that this view of wealth that says you can use it to get your way is bad. And those who are poor in spirit, who come to him in reliance, they are going to be the ones, right? Poverty is a vicious cycle. It's an incredibly hard thing generationally to lift out of poverty. Jesus here bases his blessing on something, and here's the key, that everybody can attain in equal measure. Humility. If you are living paycheck to paycheck and the person next to you is making 400K a year, you have an equal opportunity to enjoy into the kingdom of God because your money has nothing to do with it. Right? If you are coming from a family that has a famous name in this area and you're sitting next to someone who doesn't even have a family anymore, you can both equally attain the kingdom of God because Jesus bases his blessing on one thing, humility. That's it. This is why Mary bursts into song and this is why we celebrate the birth this morning, this, is, or this evening. This is why we gather every single Sunday to lift his name up in worship. She was celebrating that with Jesus as king, there will be a kingdom fit for everybody. Everyone has the chance to be in this kingdom. And so on this evening, here's what the Lord wants you to hear. Whether you've been in church your whole life or whether you stumbled in here off the street today, whether you're visiting us for the first time, maybe you're here because a family member guilted you into being here tonight and you don't really want to be here and you're just excited to go home and drink eggnog. Right? I'm excited to go home and drink eggnog, but I also am excited to be here. Right? Whatever your reason for being here, here's what the Lord wants you to hear loud and clear. Jesus has come into this world as king. He has come to rule and to reign. And his kingdom isn't like anything else that you have ever seen or heard. Jesus doesn't care about your money. He doesn't care about your status. He doesn't care about your talents. He'll give you the ones you need. He doesn't care about your knowledge. He doesn't care about how dirty you feel or are or what your past looks like. He does not care. 
He doesn't care how you got here tonight. He doesn't care if you want to be here tonight or you don't. He doesn't care. He has come to set up a kingdom where there's only one metric. Will you trust and follow him? And will you humble yourself in his sight? That's it. Nothing else matters. You don't know what my past is like. Doesn't matter. Jesus has come with a new kingdom. It's not like any kingdom you know. It doesn't work the way the world works. It doesn't judge you the way the world judges. It's not the same as anything you've ever seen before. Will you come to him needy and longing to be filled? It doesn't say in Mary's song that those who are full are turned away. The implication is that they never even come to be filled because they think they already have it all. Will you say... I need you to fill me, to bless me, to come into my life, to work within me, to shape me, to change me, to guide me, to make me a new creation each and every day when I wake up anew for the rest of my life until I breathe my last, which means I'll breathe my first. That's it. If that's you, if that is who you are, if that resonates in your mind today, then you can sing along with Mary this evening. You can say that my soul magnifies the Lord. You can say that he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, myself. And you can say, behold, from now on, every single generation will call me blessed. My prayer this night, as we celebrate the arrival of Christ the Lord as a little baby, in the most humble of ways, to demonstrate what kind of king he would be, is that we might equally humble ourselves, that we might follow the pattern that he has set for us. And I can promise you, if you're willing to do that, his kingdom is for you, and he is your kind of king. And he's good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy in your grace, in your gift of Jesus, your Son. We come to this world to change the way things have always been, to shape us, to demonstrate to us love and affection and care, to upend the ways and the systems that have oppressed people for so long. Lord, we have suffered under various degrees of oppression This world is seeing people that are of faith destroyed each and every day. We're silenced. And each and every day we struggle with disease and illness and strife amongst our family members and all of these things. And Lord, you promised to break in with a kingdom that is nothing like what we have ever seen before. And so we praise you this night. We pray that we might know you. We pray that we might humble ourselves. We pray that in our humility we might be able to go out from this night forth and proclaim Christ born, ministering, crucified, and risen to everyone we meet. Be with us this night. We love you and we praise you. And all his people said, Amen.